Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. My name is Doug, and we are live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, thinking through God's Word together. So glad you're here. It's Friday, and uh, it's going to be a good day. I hope you got your extra coffee. You're going to need it, and uh, we're going to dive into some fun and difficult things today. Uh, we're studying through Romans 9, 10, 11. We're in Romans 11, and we're asking the question, what about Israel? Because uh, it's a, an important topic, biblically and in the Christian culture at large. So that's what we're doing. Uh, before we get into that, I see a question from uh, Chris and Jenny Foshi that I think is worth looking at here. Uh, he says, for one who has not practiced at studying the Bible, which Bible is best? And how do I know where the passage is telling which book in verse it is referring to? Uh, so if I'm understanding the uh, intent of your question, I prefer the New American Standard, the NASB. Uh, because it is uh, pretty literal, meaning it sticks pretty closely to the Greek, which means it's it's not as readable as some. Uh, the ESV, the NIV, um, some of those that, uh, especially the NIV, I, it, there's a whole theory, a philosophy of translating dynamic equivalence versus uh, literal and all that. We won't get into that today, but uh, basically those who strive to stick as closely as they can to the uh, Greek, that those are the, the versions that are a little bit uh, more difficult to, for us to read in English. But the reason I like it is it keeps in all of the words like for, thus, uh, and so you can follow the arguments. And, uh, and then when you look at the NAS, as I'll show you here in a moment uh, when I pull up today's text, uh, when it's in all caps and set apart as, uh, as uh, poetry, then you know it's quoting from the Old Testament. And then there are little index letters. Again, I'll, well, let me just show you this. Uh, so see here in the NAS, just like on my screen, it's true in the NAS Bible, all capital letters, and it's, it's uh, center justified, I guess it is, to show kind of poetry. So this all indicates it's an Old Testament quote. And then these letters right here, can you see, uh, hope you can see on there that little A. Uh, it'll have a a center or a, a lower index footnote kind of thing that'll say this is Isaiah 59:20, and this little a here says Isaiah 59:21, and then this b says Isaiah 27 uh, 9 so uh, anyway I hope that answered your question if not follow follow up with me later and I'll be happy to uh, interact more and um, Dale says Uh, is it a sin to find the NASB to, mo to be the most readable as well? <laughs> no, it's not. I also find it very readable, but then I like uh, I like words. <laughs> I like I like to dive into those little words, and not everybody does. All right, so let's get into the text, and uh, and we're going to start here again in uh, Romans 11. But we're going to go, as I said in the title, if you saw it, to. Uh, to another interesting place. So, okay. All right. So Paul says here, for I do not want you to be uh, uninformed of this mystery. We've been talking about this mystery, something that was hidden. It was there in the Old Testament, uh, but it's it's been hidden. Oh, let me get that. Uh, let me get that off your screen there. It was hidden, but now been revealed. And uh, and here's the mystery that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. And there's a time reference here, until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. 
So we're trying to figure out what is he talking about when he says the fullness of the Gentiles? What is that phrase? And how does that correlate with the hardening of Israel that has happened partially or for a partial period of time? The phrase could mean that. We'll come back at the end of all this uh, next week and look at that again. But this idea of the fullness or the fulfillment of the Gentiles, how does that correlate with the uh, hardening of Israel? What is this mystery? What is this that now has been unfolded to us by the Apostle Paul? as far as the timing of all of this. And then Paul says, and so in this way, in this manner, all Israel will be saved. And we talked about how so means in this, in this, this is how, right? How will all Israel be saved in this way? Isaiah 59, deliverer will come from Zion, remove the ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. And then he quotes Isaiah 27. And remember, we looked at this, when I take away their sins, when is a time referent. When he does that, and we looked extensively yesterday, and I hope the technical glitches didn't cause you too much problem. I hope you're able to follow along. Uh, here's what Isaiah 27 says. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be, and remember we looked at this, forgiven is not. <laughs> so here I just told you the NAS is more literal. Here they aren't as literal. Uh, they do a little interpreting for you. The, the Hebrew word is actually atoned for. And we discussed this yesterday that the this, this is the way in which God is going to atone for Jacob's sin is the same way that he did with other nations by banishing them, by driving them away, exiling them. When he makes all the altar stones like, pul- like uh, pulverized chalk stones, For the fortified city is isolated, a homestead forlorn, the calf will graze, they will lie down. In other words, it's going to be a wiped out city where the animals are going to graze because there aren't people there. Uh, For these people, Jacob, Israel, they are not a people of discernment. Therefore, their maker will not have compassion on them. Their creator will not be gracious to them. So uh, the way in which God's going to take away their sins, according to Isaiah 27, is to judge Israel and destroy the city and the temple. Right? So very different from the way we normally think of this. So that's what he means. That's what he quotes when he says, in this way, all Israel will be saved when I take away their sins, actually by atoning for their sins, by destroying them. If you don't, if that doesn't make sense to you, you need to go back and watch yesterday's uh, broadcast because I unpacked that uh, much more thoroughly. All right. So again, we're asking the question, what's the timing? How does this play into the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, the hardening of Israel and all of that? Well, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, of course, it happened after Isaiah saw that vision. It happened in 586 BC. Then they rebuilt the temple. And 40 years after Jesus died and rose again, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple occurred again, A.D. 70. So here's what I want to do today. I want to to help us to see that the disciples seemed to know something about this, right? Um... 
what I realize is I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you, and as we all bring it all together, I'm hoping it'll hoping it'll formulate uh, some clarity. But uh, this timing, this mystery that Paul's talking about, it, it was there, he says in the Old Testament, but he's now taking the cover off so we can see it fully. And, and we see this through the Old Testament, we see it through the New Testament. So uh, this destruction of the temple in 70 AD was predicted in the Old Testament. It was predicted there, I believe, in Isaiah 27, and we're going to look at another place today. So yesterday, we went to Matthew 24 and saw this. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his temples came to the point out the temple buildings to him. So he's, his disciples saying, look, Jesus, notice the temple, how great it is. Jesus says, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left on another, which will not be torn down. So Jesus makes this shocking statement. Temple's going to be knocked over. So a little while later here, he's sitting at the Mount of Olives. The disciples come to disciples come to him privately and they say, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And if you remember yesterday, I just raised the question, why do we assume the disciples are asking about the return of Christ, what we call the return of Christ, the second coming? Why do we think that? Well, we think that because we've been taught that Matthew 24 is about the second coming. But is it? Do we have warrant for thinking that the disciples would have understood the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple to be an indication of Jesus coming back again? Remember, these are the guys who didn't take him at his word when he said he was going to die on the cross, right? He said, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem and be crucified. We hand it over to the Gentiles and they're going to crucify me. And the disciples says, no, no, no. Peter rises up and says, no, Lord, I will never let that happen. I will die before I let them take your life, right? This is the same Peter who denied him three times. I'll talk at that point. Uh, they, they were dismayed when he died on the cross. They were stunned. They didn't expect him to come back to life. They were shocked. So why would we think that at this point, they have in view his second coming? Remember in John 14, he says, I'm going away, and they're dismayed at that? No, you can't go away. You're the Messiah. We've been waiting for you for centuries, and here you are, and you're going to go away? No, that's not good news. And Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. If I go, I'll come and come back. And they weren't comforted by that. They didn't get it. So why would they be thinking that the destruction of the temple has to do with his second coming. And then they ask the question, what will be the sign of the end of the age? So it seems to me, and just see if this makes sense to you, that when he brings up the destruction of the temple, they know something about, about him coming to destroy the temple and that that's going to signify the end of the age. It, it's, these seem to me, and, and again, I'm, I'm just trying to bring you along slowly here and see if I can persuade you. And maybe you'll point out something I'm missing. But it seems to me like they have some thoughts in mind when they hear this idea of the destruction of the temple. They have some thoughts in mind of what that would mean. Now uh, their mind is going back over the Old Testament prophecies and saying, 
oh yeah, the prophets talk about this. Something to do with coming, something to do with the end of, of the age. Uh, Peter asks a question here. Uh, could it be that the coming they were talking about was him coming to power? Uh, maybe. I, I would argue that's exactly what happened. Whether that's what they had in mind or not, uh, I'm not sure. Let me, let me walk through uh, Daniel here and see if, uh, if that adds any clarity to, to that question. All right, so a little bit further down in Matthew 24, uh, Jesus says this. So it's the same context. He's still addressing the, uh, the destruction of the temple and answering their question, what will be the sign and all, so on. And he says this, therefore, when you see, and the you here, by the way, he's talking to his disciples. He's not changed subjects. He's not turned to anybody else. He says, when you disciples see the abomination of desolation. And Chris, if you see here, this is in capital letters. And there is a, uh, a little index letter here that says this is from Daniel 9.27. So if you, are, if you were reading the New American Standard, this would be a, one of those places that you look at and say, oh, this is a direct quote, and it shows you where the direct quote is coming from. So then you'd want to go back and read uh, the, the big section there in Daniel to see what he's talking about. And we're going to do that. I'm going to model that for you. So Jesus says, when you disciples see the abomination of, de of desolation, which was spoken of through... Daniel the prophet, when you see him standing in the holy place, and then notice this parenthetical statement, let the reader understand. This is Jesus. This should be red letters, I believe. I don't believe Matthew is inserting this. I believe Jesus said it. I believe he's saying, when you disciples, the ones I'm talking to, see the abomination of desolation, which Daniel the prophet spoke of, when you see him standing in the holy place, let the reader of Daniel, you, the disciples, let the reader of Daniel understand. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down and so on. Woe to those who are pregnant. And you know some of this. We'll, we'll come back to some of this in a little bit. But I want to take you to one more verse down here. The context has not changed. And look what he says here. This is still Jesus talking to his disciples. Truly, I say to you, this generation. Friends, he's not talking to you and me in the 21st century. He's talking to his disciples. He says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. You see that? All the stuff he's been saying here in Matthew 24, he says, this generation the one he's talking to, will not pass away until all these things take place. So we need to go back and look at Matthew and what he predicted and see how there could have been fulfillment within a generation of these things. Well, he just referred to the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of. So let's go back and look at that. I realize, wow, uh, time is moving on. We may have to come back to some of this on Monday, but let me let me set the context here and at least give you some things to think about. We'll see how far we get. And again, I want to model this for you. It's important uh, to to see the context of what is uh, what going on. So we're going to go back to the be uh, the beginning of chapter nine of Daniel here. 
In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. Now, if you don't know your biblical history, that's a mouthful. So Daniel was one of the exiles who was, he's a Jew, taken from Jerusalem, exiled and went to Babylon. And, and if you know the stories, he uh, was in the king's court. Nebuchadnezzar liked him. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had the vision of the big statue. Daniel interprets it. Uh, and, and some other things in Daniel. So at this point, then, Nebuchadnezzar is no longer king. Darius is the king. And uh, he's a Medo-Persian king. So Nebuchadnezzar has been destroyed. <clears throat> Daniel, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, again, there's a lot here. And I don't want to insult your intelligence, but to make sure that we're all aware, I just want to draw out some things here. So Daniel says he's reading Jeremiah the prophet, or at least reading, maybe it's not the whole book that we have, but he's reading, he knows the words of Jeremiah. Think about this. this is, I think this is really cool. So Jeremiah was a prophet in Jerusalem at the time of the uh, the takeover by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, for those of you who are vegetarian fa fans, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, when he comes to destroy Jerusalem, burns down the city, burns down the temple, all of that, Jeremiah is a prophet in Jerusalem during that time. And when you read his prophecy, when you read Lamentations, uh, you see so much that's going on there, and, and it, it, he's, he's called the weeping prophet because he weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem and the hardness of the hearts of Israel and, and that kind of thing. Well, God revealed through Jeremiah that the city was going to be destroyed, but then God would bring exiles back to Jerusalem in 70 years after the exile. Right? So God told that to Jeremiah. The destruction of Jerusalem happens. Daniel, among others, are exiled. Daniel's reading the word of the Lord. And he realizes, he starts doing the math. And he realizes it's been about 70 years since Jeremiah wrote that. And he says, oh, it's soon going to be uh, the time for God to bring exiles back to Jerusalem. Right? So I love that. I love that. Daniel knows the prof prophecy of Jeremiah, and he says, he, he starts counting, oh, it's almost been 70 years. It's time. One other thing to notice here, the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem. This is such an important word, desolations, desolations. It's, it's the same thing as we saw in Isaiah 27, just he didn't use the word desolations. The city's going to be wiped out. There's going to be all these animals wandering around because there's no one there. It's, it's going to be decimated or desolate, lonely, because there aren't people there. So Daniel's figuring it out that it's about time for God to restore people to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. He said, so I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And let's just catch a little bit of his prayer here. We won't have time to get into all of it. But he said, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, 
Jeremiah and Isaiah and the rest of them, they constantly called Israel to repentance or else God would judge them. And Daniel here is admitting, we didn't listen to them. We, talking about our people, we did not listen uh, to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby, those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them, driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. You see what he's doing here. He's saying he's acknowledging humbly, Lord, you made a covenant with us and you promised to be gracious and kind and, and bless the people of Israel, your people, if we obeyed the covenant. But you also promised to destroy us if we didn't obey your covenant, if we didn't keep your commandments. And we didn't. We didn't keep the law. And you kept sending messengers to us, your prophets, and they warned us, and we didn't heed your prophets, and therefore we deserve all of the destruction you've brought on us. We deserve the judgment. That's what Daniel's saying. He's, he's confessing the sin of the Jews, saying, Lord, you were faithful to your covenant by wiping us out as you, uh, as you promised. So he goes on, uh, and, and it's, it's worth your time to read this and see how Dan, Daniel is very humble and acknowledging uh, the reason why um, the uh, uh, Jerusalem fell. I want to skip down here to verse 18. Oh, my God, he says, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations. There's that word again. Lord, look, look at, the, look at your city. You're the city which is called by your name. Look at it. It's been desolate, desolated. It's been destroyed. It's been wiped out. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits on our own. Daniel knows better. We've gotten what we deserved, and you're a just God. No, he says, we're, I'm asking here on account of your great compassion. Have compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay because of, and notice the phrasing here, your city, Jerusalem, and your people who are called by your name. That's the Jews, right? Your city, your people called by your name. All right, he goes on, continues to do more praying, and, and here's where it gets very interesting. He says, now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, right, who we now know as an angel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, back in uh, chapter 7, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding from the vision. Interesting there, too. Gabriel says, the, the, this is just amazing. The prayers you were offering come up to heaven. The Lord heard your prayer and he issued the command. It's like Gabriel is there in the court and God hears the, the prayer and the supplication of Daniel. He says, hey, you, Gabriel, here's the vision. I want you to go 
give to Daniel. Here's the explanation. Go and give him this message. Go. And Gabriel heads on, right? You see that? At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. You, Gabriel, go with this message. I love this. So often we read the Bible and we just, we, it, it, it becomes so ethereal, so, um, I don't know, abstract. This is real time and space. God's saying, you, Gabriel, take this message. I love that. All right. So here <laughs> we've taken on most of our time and I haven't even gotten into the prophecy yet. Uh, I know there's going to be questions. So uh, let me pre- prepare you beforehand here. We're probably just going to lay out the big picture and have to come back to this with more uh, specificity on Monday. But that'll be good. For those of you who have time, it'll give you a chance to wrestle through it and come back with some questions. All right. So here is here is the uh, the vision and the answer from God to Daniel's requests. Remember the requests. Oh, Lord, it's been 70 years since Jerusalem, your city, your people were destroyed and you took exiles. It's been 70 years. And you said, God, you said to Jeremiah, that in 70 years, you would bring exiles back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. That's what you said. So I'm asking you, I'm asked, Daniel says, I'm asking you, Lord, to do what you said you would do. Which, by the way, I, I just can't say this without, without uh, drawing attention to this. We today tend to use God's sovereignty as a reason not to pray or at least not to pray earnestly, right? We reason in our own mind. If God has already determined the end, then what's the use of me praying? Oh, I'm supposed to pray, so I'll go through the motions of praying, and, and I'll do it because it's my duty. I'll do it because he says so, and, and oh, he'll change me, but it won't change circumstances. That's what we think, even though the Bible doesn't say any of those things. Uh, we, we're better theologians than God, and we determine that since God has already planned it, it doesn't really make our prayers effective. You never see that in the Bible. What you see in the Bible is because God is sovereign, because God has determined the end from the beginning, his servants pray on their knees earnestly for God to do exactly what he prophesied that he would do, what he promised to do, what he declares he would do. And that's exactly what we see here. Daniel says, Lord, you said in 70 years, You would bring your people back to Jerusalem. So he's putting on sackcloth, dust and ashes, begging the Lord to do what he said he would do. I think there's something instructive for us. All right, so here's the vision. Here's the response. Lord, have have mercy on your people. Rebuild the city just like you said you would. Take note of your people, right? Your people, your city. And implied in all that is the temple. Those three things. Here's God's response. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, do you hear the ominousness just of that tone? Seventy weeks have been decreed. And we know how this ends. It means the destruction again. So, there's a, again, there's a heaviness. There's a weight. This would be somber music in the, uh, in the soundtrack. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to do these six things. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. 
70 weeks have been decreed for your people, the Jews, and your city, Jerusalem, for all of these things to take place. So you, Daniel, are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So that's going to happen, Daniel. There will be a word given. And yes, Jerusalem will be restored and it will be rebuilt. From that point until Messiah the Prince, until the Anointed One. So there's a word to rebuild Jerusalem. God is going to fulfill his promise to rebuild Jerusalem. Between that and the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again. The city will be rebuilt again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So it will not be an easy task. It will not be um, unencumbered by opposition. Unopposed is the word I was looking for uh, as they rebuild. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. You see that? Daniel is begging the Lord to fulfill his promise to rebuild the city. Gabriel shows up and says, that's going to happen. It will be rebuilt. But then at the end of these weeks that have been declared for you, the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Think of it. Daniel's seeing, hearing the vision, hearing the, the, the statement of God. Yep, it's going to be rebuilt. And then at some point in the future, it's going to be destroyed again. The city is going to be destroyed. The sanctuary, the temple is going to be destroyed. And he says here, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war desolations are determined. Remember what Matthew, what, what Jesus said in Matthew? I moved on past it. Where is it? When you see the abomination of desolation that was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, desolations are determined for the city and the sanctuary, Gabriel says. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. Again, with respect to the city and the sanctuary, Jerusalem and the temple, abomination, desolation, destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. All right, so there's a lot there to unpack and a lot of disagreement over what that means. So here's your assignment for the weekend, if you so choose. Go through those verses, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, and begin just thinking through what could it mean. I would encourage you not to read commentaries. Don't read books. Don't read theology. Just pour over the text. See if you can figure it out. I'll give you a clue here in a minute. Uh, Paul says, why the usage of weeks? Perhaps you can answer that at some point. Yeah, uh, as you can imagine, that's uh, one of the debated points. So 
most every scholar that I know of, regardless of the viewpoint they come at, and, and, and this is one of the most debated passages in the whole Old Testament, and we'll, we'll get into that next week, but most everybody from every vantage point believes that the sevens is referring to a, uh, a seven-year period instead of an actual seven-day week. And it's just a prophetic way of saying 77-year periods. So I don't, I don't know how to answer that beyond that just appears to be what he's saying. Um, there's not really a good parallel in the Old Testament uh, to that. Uh, but seven is a, is a common uh, number, right, for, for completion, for the completion of God's work in a variety of places. So Gabriel says 77. That's not actually even 70 weeks in the Hebrew, if that helps answer your question. It's 77s have been declared for your people. And since seven-day week is so often uh, the mindset, that's what the Jewish week, right? Seven-day week, seven week, then it's translated weeks and sometimes stands for weeks. But the, the language is really 77s. So most everybody I know uh, says that uh, 77s um, uh, are declared. And as, as Dale pointed out there, yeah, there's some other prophecies in Daniel, the seven year periods are usually years. So again, there's really not much debate over the sevens. Most, most every scholar is going to say 77 year periods have been decreed for your people. So with that as a tool in your toolbox, look over the text and see if you can figure out well, here's where you start. Do some math. 77-year periods, how long is that compared to when Gabriel gives this instruction and what happens in about that time frame? All right, our time is up. Uh, Todd, <laughs> Todd's asked me every day, what about the partial hardening lifted? Uh, we're going to get there, brother. We're going to get there. But I want to help everybody just kind of come along and see, uh, see at least where I'm coming from. And again, I may not persuade you but uh, to help people see what I think Paul is getting at in Romans 11. So time is up. Thanks for coming along with me. Have a great weekend. Enjoy uh, the celebration with God's people on Sunday morning. And Lord willing, we'll be back at this on Monday. Have a great one.